Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Come Follow Me podcast from Latter-day Peace Studies. This week, we're going to be covering the reading that includes Genesis 3 and 4 and Moses 4 and 5. But we're actually going to dip back into the previous chapter a little bit because we want to get the entirety of the narrative here, sort of starting with Adam and Eve. In our previous podcast, we talked about the creation as a temple text. In other words, when we look at Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, and then Moses 2 and 3, these are examples of an ancient liturgical manual If we would go to the temple and we have sort of the whole manual with all of the the text of the the ceremony and liturgy, this is essentially where these things originated. When we look at Genesis 1 and 2, and then we get into Genesis 3 as well, these come out of that liturgical tradition of the ceremonial temple rites. So in our tradition, this actually fits really well with how we experience these temple rituals and ceremonies because the account of the creation and the Garden of Eden and the fall and so forth is the narrative that is used to teach the the ceremony and liturgy of the temple. So as we go into this, sort of how we're going to approach it is a discussion of, of what's going on in general in Genesis, sort of the second half of chapter two and then chapter three and chapter four. And then we'll go to Moses and have a discussion about some of the the extra things that we find in Moses. Before we were talking a little bit about this, uh, Christopher, and we realized that Moses is like the extended edition, right? The the director's cut uh, version of, <laughs> of right. Genesis, which is, I mean, that's basically exactly what it is. You know, Joseph Smith translation comes in and he's supposed to fill out all the stuff that's missing from a broader, better contextual understanding of what's going on here in this book. I should say from the start out, there's probably no scriptural account that is more commented on and debated and discussed than what goes on in the Garden of Eden. What what do you say to that, Christopher? As a matter of fact, we're going to see that Eve was commenting on it when we we get there. Yeah. Stay tuned. Yeah. There's so much here that can be pulled in from a lot of different commentaries and stuff. So in the stuff that we looked at and and referenced over the past several months, uh, looking at this account, no less than a dozen or or more different takes on what this means. We're going to approach it um, not just from the textual accounts, but we might actually, if the conversation becomes organic in this way, we might even bring in some of our commentary on what we have from our, our temple account in, in an appropriate way, just to show that our effort's not going to be to try to reconcile these accounts into like one master account of what really happened, right, in the Garden of Eden. Rather, I think 
it's an attempt to show that the the varying accounts actually can speak to us in different ways and show us the variety of revelation and more particularly scripture and what it means to have variety in scripture and makes it pretty interesting, especially again, in reference to these accounts here. So jumping in here to, to Genesis 2, we're going to start off with basically the creation of Adam and Eve and their placement in the garden. Right off the bat, we've got, you know, setting the scene, we've got Adam and Eve and then the two trees. So we've got the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the Latter-day Saint tradition, there's a lot more discussion about the tree of life, especially when we approach like the dream of Lehi. But within the context of Genesis, we don't typically talk about the tree of life very much. Most of the focus is on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And sometimes that's shortened to just tree of knowledge. I want to talk about that tree, though, the tree of life, because another thing we're doing here tonight, Ben, is we're going to go back, just like we talked about Genesis 1 and 2 and the other creation accounts as temple texts, we continue in that same vein with the rest of the entire book of Moses. Right. We're going to continue in that same vein, although we're not talking about the entire book of Moses tonight. But then we're also going to show in this temple context where Adam and Eve show up in that context as priest and priestess right right at the same time and also because i because i i want it i want this to be actionable right so i think for a lot of latter-day saints the old testament seems well old and 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 by that i mean outdated right uh we have the new testament we have modern revelation even other even moses that tells us more about the same story but then again it's just this strange story and and you have the science debate against creation we've already shown that that's irrelevant here because we're dealing with these temple texts and that they have this meaning that is archetypal more than uh certainly not historical maybe etiological right we've talked about that but we want to go back into the garden, don't we? Don't we want to return to paradise, to the presence of God, and we want to partake of the tree of life? That's where I'd like us to end up, Ben. I mean, uh, in the conversation and also in the end, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the conversation, that's where that's where we end up. I mean, what's interesting about that is just the way that the the Bible is put together right now. You know, at the end of Revelation, we actually end up back in the garden. And it, it was purposely constructed that way. But in any event, one of the things that I think is really profound that I've come back to multiple times that they say during the temple ceremony is that we are to consider ourselves as if we are respectively Adam or Eve. And I was listening to a podcast that you did with Riley on the Divine Feminine just a bit ago. And uh, one of the things, I maybe it was Riley brought it up, is that the word respectively wasn't always in the, the ceremony before there was a part where it said you should consider yourself as if you were Adam and Eve. And I thought that was an interesting point because the idea here is that the creation of, of Adam and Eve is that they are created as equals, right? As counterparts. And that is symbolized by Eve being created from the side of Adam, from the rib of Adam, to be right next to him, equal to him, not from the head, not from the foot, but equal right next to him. Well, you say that you say the rib and, and, and the side, 
the rib is the translation that the KJV gives us, right? The King James Correct. version. And yet it can be translated and really is better translated as his side, meaning his whole side. Yes. You know, it's 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 his half, probably his better half, right? His, his, his better half. Yes. Yeah. And actually, we looked at some commentary, too, where even it could be read, again, in a temple setting, as that half is actually a wing in the temple off to the side. And God brings a woman, so brings her to him from the this wing off to the side in the temple. Yeah. Well, and the, the symbolism here is that you have sort of the the diversion from the androgynous human into the separate parts, male and female, as Adam and Eve. And then they're brought before God, and we we have something that's been interpreted as marriage, right? Where they're told they're to be one flesh. And so we have the separation and then the combining. And again, you guys commented on this in the Divine Feminine podcast, but that that's an alchemical process there where symbolically there's there's the separation between Adam and Eve so that they're to to look at each other and see what it is that they themselves lack and then join together to be one flesh. And again, that's sort of a microcosm maybe of that concept of the return. Yeah. So the text actually expresses it in a causal way, right? We get that Eve is created from the, I'm going to say, the whole side of Adam. And then it says, and for this reason, they come back together. Right? This is the idea that, you, that they come back together. Yes. Uh, by the way, yes. for those of you who are newly joining us, we're referring to the Latter-day Contemplation podcast, our sister podcast, co-hosted by Riley Risto and, and me. And that was an episode we recently recorded on the Divine Feminine with Dr. Finlayson Fife. I think a good commentary on this this concept here, especially when we look at this as a temple text and what we experience as Latter-day Saints in the temple and how we're to uh, approach that concept, that ultimately those things are to be brought back together, which symbolically happens in the temple. Everything is brought back together into its proper order. And then we have the culminating ordinance of sealing where where those are, are to be one uh, together. But even within the endowment ceremony, there is that coming back together of those two as well. I'm not sure if you had any more commentary on that, Christopher, or if you want to go and, and talk about the serpent yet. Yeah, you know, just to say that this this is what we call in, in alchemical terms, the sacred marriage, the hieragamy. This is the mystery of conjunction, right? The joining of opposites, which again, we're saying originally come from one whole. And so, of course, that's why, as the text says, that's why they have to return to become one whole again. And then, Ben, the only other thing would be mentioning that just as, as you said earlier in the temple, we are to consider ourselves as Adam and Eve respectively, whether with or without the respectively. The, the Adam and Eve in the text, in the original, they, they don't appear as names of people. And I'm not just saying that, hey, you know, Adam never called Eve Eve because you know, the language that, that's being used is from the second millennium BCE, but rather that that Adam appears with a definite article, which is like to say the Adam. But here you're talking about man and woman, right? Ish and Isha, human person, masculine, and the human person, feminine. Right. Which is to say that Adam and Eve represent humanity as such. And so we looked at this account as them as the model humans. And so in a, in a metaphorical and, and symbolic sense, 
what they're experiencing here is what we all at some point experience in our lives or that we can experience or maybe even should might be the right word. I'm not sure if I'm going to go that far, but should might be the right word because this is a pattern, again, a temple a ceremonial experience that we, when we go and have this experience at the temple, we're, we're considering ourselves going through this. So at the beginning, Christopher, you talked about how this would be something actionable. So when we're going to the temple, we're not just going through this so that we can get work done for, for somebody's name that we have a piece of paper of, right? We're to be experiencing in that moment what it means to be going through and having these symbolic experiences, what it means for ourselves, for our lives, us as individuals, but then also us as as humanity in general. Yeah, the only other thing I wanted to mention before we move on to the the serpent is that we, in, in giving this interpretation, we have not intended at all to explain Genesis 2 as, as an expansion or even a retelling you know, some kind of re- retelling of Genesis 1. Rather, I think it'll help us to mention this because we're, we're going to end up with Cain in this discussion. And so in Genesis 1, we have that God created Adam and Eve, uh, well, man and woman, right? He creates yeah. man and woman at once, right? And, and in Genesis 2, it's first Adam, then Eve from the half of Adam. It's a different account. There are two different accounts. They have different authors, different purposes and intents. And at the same time, they function in the same way. And so I think that helps us because later on we have Cain is worried that everyone, everyone is going to want to kill him. Mom, is that you? Dad, yeah. is that you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And then we have him marrying. Who is he marrying? He even builds a city. And, and if you build a city and, and there's no one living there, what is the city but the people, as uh, Shakespeare put it, right? So these are three reasons at least why I think it's important to notice that. Yeah, I think the the account in Moses that we're going to get to here does try to resolve that tension a little bit by talking about how Adam and Eve actually had children before Cain and Abel, and there was a lot that happened before that. But I think you're right in pointing out that this idea that the story of Cain or that the, the account of Adam and Eve is somehow like a perfect history and sequence of events of how things happened, I don't think is a fair or or useful reading. And it's not even literal. Right, right. We think of it as literal, but it's not literal because it doesn't take into account the context and purpose of the authors. Yeah. Remember, this is a really a, a collection of stories. And when they collected these and, and put them together, these stories and these myths and these etiologies, they had the task of trying to fit them together and weave them into some sort of coherent narrative. But when we get to the account of Cain being the quote-unquote son of, of Adam and Eve, I don't think that, that it makes any sense to necessarily impose upon that a literalness that he was their, their first-generation offspring, right? So this is a archetypal Cain that it comes up at some point in history, and this is what happens. And it tells us a whole lot because, you know, just as we might consider ourselves as Adam and Eve— we could look at Cain as well and be like, what is it about Cain that also reflects who I am? And what does it say about my state as as human and, and, and my psyche and so forth? So Indeed. One of the questions you brought up, Christopher, I know when we were discussing this previously, was what is a snake doing in the garden, right? 
Seems like a good place for a snake to me. <laughs> so in Genesis, um, we have just the snake. We don't have any reference to Satan, right? Right. This concept that the snake is Satan is actually not existent in Genesis. It's an idea that develops later in scripture. And and one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the accounts that we have is that in Genesis, it has it as just a serpent straight up talking to Eve. Then we go to Moses and Moses accounts it as Satan putting it into the heart of a serpent to talk to Eve. And then we go to our temple account, and there's really no mention of a serpent at all. It's just straight up Satan, right? There's a progression there. Yeah, there's like this progression of how this account develops and how we conceptualize who this serpent slash Satan is. And there's kind of these three different different ways of, of viewing it. What, what do you think about that, Christopher? What, why would there be that, do you think? Well, yeah, the first thing that occurs to me to say that we haven't touched on yet is where is this place that we're calling the garden? So I'll start by dealing with the serpent, right? In in the Jewish tradition, the serpent is not equated with Satan. If you if you talk to a Jew about Satan in the garden, you'll get a puzzled look, right? Because Satan's not in the garden account. A serpent is. And a serpent is a chaos creature uh, comparable to the Leviathan in the Bible, which, you know, Leviathan is comparable to Tiamat in uh, the Enuma Elish and the creation epic from... Mythical dragon, yeah. Right, from the, from the Mesopotamian tradition. And so what it's doing there in this ordered place is producing not, not moral good and evil, right? They're not evil in a, in a moral sense in the Jewish tradition, but rather chaos. Whereas the creation was about bringing order out of chaos you know, order has to be tended and kept, right? It has to be taken care of. This chaos creature is always looking to bring chaos. And so Adam and Eve in this space, where are they? We call it a garden. It's paradise, right? And paradise, it comes from the Persian paradesos, which means a walled garden. So yeah, it's a garden, but it's this walled garden. And so it's putting this boundary around the the order, right? And of course, no matter what kind of walls you build, there's always going to be a snake that gets in, right? That's just how it is. Yeah. And so what we're looking at here, I think, again, is as we've been saying, is a temple context. And as a matter of fact, you know, the King James Bible tells us that that Adam and Eve are to dress and keep the, the garden. And yet it's better translated as work, not not dress, but work. And of course, you could still think in terms of working a garden and growing food. But this is a sacred space. God is present there. This is the temple that's been dedicated. This is the temple, and exactly. And they're the priest and priestess that are there priest attending and priestess, to their yeah. duties. Yeah. Yeah, even if we look at 1 Corinthians 9.13, if we look in the Septuagint, that is in the Greek, you know, Old Testament, and compare with the Greek New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9.13, we can see that the same verb is used in an explicit temple work context in the New Testament with the same verb that, that here is being translated as dress, Right. Yeah, dressing and so keep. they're yeah. they're keeping the sacred the order of the sacred space. They're priest and priestess. They're temple workers, and they're doing their job. And then the, the serpent is this opposing force that wants to bring chaos back to the cosmos. You know, I think it's interesting uh, just from the symbolism and imagery of yin and yang, right? Because you have this piece of chaos within the order, right? 
And that's actually the way it's supposed to be, right? Like in the temple account that we have, we have something like a God saying, we will allow Lucifer to go and tempt them and try them, right? There, there has to be, even within the most ordered space, there has to be a bit of chaos. Otherwise, it's too much order, right? It's too ordered. Well, you remind me of what the Brazilians say about themselves. You know, the Brazilians say that God made Brazil so perfect, you know, so beautiful and so perfect in every way that he put Brazilians there to kind of, you know, so because it would be too perfect otherwise. To mix right? it Just up a of, bit. To mix it up a bit, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I've never heard that. But yeah, it's kind of that that concept. Not exactly the same, but similar types of questions get brought up when we talk about the theology surrounding the existence of, of Satan. You know, within our pre-mortal narrative in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we have this concept where we're all spirit children of God there in his presence but then there exists this one among us who is Satan, who is a liar from the beginning, who's to, to deceive. And it's like, how could that exist in the presence of God? Right. And it's kind of the same same type of context there, even though we're not saying that the serpent in the Genesis story is conceptualized of as Satan. It's still the the idea that there is there's something there that we may not think fits and is appropriate and yet, within God's cosmogony, that actually is the right place for it to be. You know, Ben, I can give an answer to that. Not the answer, an answer <laughs> to that question. I know you meant it rhetorically, but, well, here's the answer. It's by being quiet. <laughs> it's by being quiet. Do you think my shadow self was there when I was on my first date with my wife? No, no. That was suppressed, right? You, 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 you keep that under wraps, right? Right. And so that's one way by by just keeping it quiet, right? So there's something to think about, right? You know, we as we as we go into the story, we can think in terms of this again, this this garden, this sacred space, the place where God is present, the place where heaven and earth therefore meet as a high place. So we can even say that this this is taking place in a pre-mortal, not just pre-mortal because we we believe that Adam and Eve are are not mortal until they partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we can say it's even pre-earthly. And of course, in sacred cosmography, if we think about Dante, for example, you have that the earthly paradise, the Garden of Eden, is in the top of Mount Purgatory, which, by the way, occurs when Satan is cast down from heaven down to the earth. That pushes out, as he goes down into hell, that pushes out the mountain in the southern hemisphere, mm-hmm. at the top of which is the Garden of Eden. You know, there's some extra canonical evidence that we can bring in for this idea, too. You know, Ben, you and I both have studied Arabic and Quran and Middle East studies and whatnot. And, you know, we've read the account of the creation in the in the Quran, which, by the way, is not like most of the Quran. It's not all in one place. The only sustained narrative in the whole Quran is the Joseph story. And I'm looking forward to sharing that. Well, it's bits and pieces throughout the Quran, similar yeah, in some ways to how we have bits and pieces throughout the Book of Mormon. That's right. Of the story of Adam and Eve. You know, you get a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, oh, one part talks about Adam and Eve. Another part talks about the angel and the tree of life. You know, so so it's kind of all over their place, bits and pieces. So I think that's an interesting comparison there. At least. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because last week we talked about the five different accounts of the creation in the Latter-day Saint tradition, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Moses, Abraham, and the temple. And yet there's a sixth. We keep coming up of, with more all the in time. In the Book of Mormon, right? Yeah. yeah. So in the Quran, when, when 
first when when Satan is told to leave the garden, as it's often translated, and later when Adam and Eve are also told to leave the garden, the verb that we actually get, ehbetu, means to go down. Mm-hmm. They're actually sent down. Yeah. And so I think we can read it as, even though this is the earthly paradise, they fall from this high place, from this cosmic mountain to the earth. Yeah. Well, that we get that in our temple account as well, you know, let us go down, let us go down type of thing. Well, but that's from, that's the gods coming down to the garden, right? I'm saying that Adam and Eve are in the high place. The, the gods can still be higher, right? Even after an Adam and Eve are cast out, they talk about let us go down type of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But um, when we talked about Moses going up into the high mountain, right, to, to right. experience God face to face, that is a, that's a symbolic return to Eden, right? To to be there in the presence of God and experience it all. So it kind of makes sense that while he's there in the mountain, right, symbolically in Eden, he's then seeing the whole creation and and Adam and Eve's story because that's what you see when you're up in the mountain, at the top of the mountain in paradise. I mean, that's what happens with Lehi, right? He goes and he has his vision and he sees the tree of life and it's conceptualized in a little bit different way, but it's kind of the same type of thing. You know, you mentioned, Christopher, that Adam and Eve being in the garden would be a pre-mortal state. And I think before we were started having this discussion, I hadn't quite conceptualized of the Garden of Eden narrative as being potentially, one way to look at it, I should say, a, a just a retelling or a different way of telling the same narrative that we have of our pre-mortal existence that we talk about in our plan of salvation structure, right? We talk about exactly plan of salvation, yeah. presence of God, you know, pre-mortal existence, and then the council in heaven and so forth. And then we look at it in a chronological way as if next we have creation and then we have Adam and Eve in the fall. And, you know, it, it can be useful to conceptualize it in that way. But as I've kind of delved into it with sort of a thought of experiment, there's been a lot of really interesting things that have occurred to me and allowed me to pull out understanding when I've looked at it in a little different way. And that's to to actually overlay these narratives on top of each other and say, hey, what if we've got not just recurring themes here, but but different mythological representations of the same thing, right, that's going right. on. So the 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 story of adam and eve in the garden in the story it's two people but allegorically or symbolically it's actually all of humanity that's there in the garden right well we talk about it as though it's two people but the text again using you know definite Man articles for woman, adam right. that's not yeah we're not talking yeah. about someone named adam adam just means human in some sense we're actually all there in the garden together right Exactly. And so if we look at it that way, like, oh, this is actually just a different way of expounding what we we might have separated out into these two different narratives of a pre-mortal spiritual existence as opposed to, you know, the Garden of Eden narrative. So, yeah, that makes sense. That's what I was really getting at, Ben. Same. We're on the same wavelength. And, you know, another thing, another feature, there's the overlaying idea that you've given us. And that's a good idea. Another idea is at least one scholar that I can think of that we looked at points out that in these temple texts, in these mythological narratives, you actually don't have that that a strict chronological order is observed. The story can kind of jump around. 
Yes. Right? So we can be there and now we're here and then we can be back there again and coming here again. Yes. I think you could you could look at it that way too. Yeah, and and there's many reasons that that can happen, but one of the practical reasons that that happens is because when you're actually in a temple and going through ceremonies and and rites and rituals, it becomes practical to do things in a certain order when you're in one place, right? As opposed to the next place. So in the temple, you know, we like move room to room. And so things get represented in one place that might seem out of some sort of chronological order, but they're presented in that way to maintain some some pragmatism in the ceremony. And this gets brought out when we look at the structure of the book of Moses overall. There's lots of things that are kind of misplaced there that don't seem to follow the the order. And the biggest one that always popped out to me with that is that the first chapter starts with Moses up in the mountain having a conversation with God and then goes back to creation, right? And we talked last time about why that would be, you know, that that actually the beginning of a story is never at the beginning. It's always in the middle because the story doesn't matter or make any sense until you're in the middle of it. Yeah, we have to have this. We have to go back to to Adam to to tell the story of how we ended up where we are. Right. It, it, we have to go back to the beginning to tell you where we are. But first, here we are in slavery in Egypt. Yeah. And then we tell you how we got here. Yeah, I'm going to kind of skip forward and, and you go back if you have some other points to bring up in this. Christopher, but another discussion I wanted to have surrounding this was a comparison of how Adam and Eve respond when God comes to them and says, what have you done? Versus how Cain responds when God comes to him and says, what have you done? Right? Yeah. And when we're first looking at this, it's like, well, they both kind of, you know, kind of slough it off, slough responsibility. But when when you actually look here in the text... Adam and Eve, they always speak the truth. Now, they may be kind of trying to justify their actions or say, well, it's kind of somebody else's fault, but but they do always speak the truth and confess and do accept responsibility ultimately for their own actions. It's a completely different story with Cain. What you have with Cain is first he's, he lies to God about the fact that he did it, and then he talks about how well it was Satan that put it in my heart. And then he talks about how his punishment is more than he can bear. It's not fair. And that it's, you know, it's unjust. Exactly. Whereas it's not as explicit in the Genesis account, but uh, I love how the Moses account puts it. After all of this, God teaches Adam and Eve about how they can be redeemed. And they basically profess their uh, love of God and talk about how, you know, the joy of the redemption and, and praise God for everything that, that happened because of, of their redemption. So it's, it's two very different ways of responding to God saying, what have you done, right? Yeah. And then in the end, of course, uh, Cain is cursed by God instead, and he doesn't experience that redemption, but that's not really what happens, is it? Yeah. So... This is something that Shaul and I talked about several times in, in previous podcasts, and I don't remember all the context that this came up in, but we have what we can term the, the Cain narrative here, that when God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? What have you done? It's not that God doesn't know where Abel is, right? Because he even says later, I hear his blood crying from the ground, 
um, I know you've killed him. It's that he's giving Cain an opportunity to confess, to voice his trauma. And and again, like we're talking about with Adam and Eve, that's what they do. They come out, they're, they're truthful. They, they have a conversation with God. They at first are trying to like, right? They put the fig leaves on, they kind of try to hide, but ultimately they respond to, to God and are truthful about everything that happens. And Cain does, does the opposite. Those, this narrative with Cain is that he then, instead of allowing God to, to heal him, instead of allowing God to be there to hear his trauma and to, to work through it, how are we going to solve this problem? Cain immediately assumes the problem is, is too big for God to solve. Right. And then he he rejects the the judgment of God and condemns himself. But God never imposes a particular punishment on Cain. He takes it upon himself. And he says, then he's afraid that everyone's going to kill him, which is his own sort of imposition of justice that. Well, if you kill someone, then you need to be killed. That's justice. But God never actually presents that as the way to solve the problem. God never says you need to die in order to solve this problem of your brother's death. Yeah. He has his own uh, moment, his own experience of hell. It reminds me of when Moses begins to fear in last week's reading. Then he starts to get a glimpse of hell. Yeah, uh, Cain really goes all the way into his fear and puts himself in in that place. He damns himself, and and by damnation we can understand literally that he is stopped in his ability to heal or to be redeemed, right, by God, to be healed by God, to be redeemed by God, to experience redemption, because he puts a stop to it, right? He he just doesn't. He's not open to it. He doesn't accept it. He does not have faith. In other words, he doesn't he doesn't believe. That it's possible. And so he damns himself. You know, it, it brings up an interesting thing that uh, my brother once said about this. And, and it was sort of in the context of talking about how it is that Satan lies. And the lies that, that Satan tells us typically kind of fall into one of two different kinds. And, and one is, it's no big deal. Right. And then the other is, it's too big a deal. Right. <laughs> and they're both they're both lies. Right. Right. Like God wants us to to admit to him, to to confess to him, to come to him, to speak to him the truth, to air all our grievances. Right. And and be truthful about it, to admit that it's a big deal. Yeah. So there we have the, the it's no big deal lie covered by the example of Adam and Eve. Yeah. Right. And now we have. It's too big of a deal, right? Yeah, yeah. And we get the Cain story. But but like I said, I think there's a significant difference there with with how they respond to, to God's interrogation, being that, you know, Adam and Eve tell the truth, even if they're sort of passing blame, whereas Cain lies and tries to justify his anger, then says God is unjust. Um, when God hasn't really even imposed a, a judgment, he's just saying your, your brother's blood cries from the ground. And, and Cain then takes upon himself and says that his, his punishment is more than he can bear. This is the recurring theme sort of to Satan's rebellion that we, we, get, we talk about in Moses chapter 3. This is a, a topic we were going to talk about, I think, when we, when we brought up the, the serpent. Well, I'll get, we'll get to it later with being cast down um, if we come back to that. There's one thing, Ben, that occurs to me. You know, if we're reading this right, 
and God is coming to Cain to ask him to speak his trauma. It's not that God doesn't know what's going on. God knows what's going on. He's giving uh, Cain the opportunity to speak his trauma. Then if we fast forward to, it turns out that our sins are going to be shouted from the rooftops, that this isn't some kind of punishment. This is a mercy. Hmm. It's a mercy because that which we could not speak for ourselves is spoken for us. And you know what? Once that's out there, I mean, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable, right? You don't want your sin shot from the rooftop. But once it's done, it's done. And now they don't hold any power over you anymore because that thing that we're afraid to speak is actually oftentimes if you look into yourself, that thing that you're afraid to speak is running your life. And so what a mercy it is, this idea that our sins would be shouted from the rooftop. And so that I get that out of the Cain narrative too. That's a really good point. It actually took my mind back to Moses's experience with Satan, where he he gains power over Satan when he names him for what he is. He says, you're darkness, right? You know, he, he doesn't shy away from that confrontation, but how he approaches it is, is by turning to to the his Christ aspect, right? The, we talked about this in a psychological sense, but turning to Christ um, in, in the text is what he does. And sort of a fascinating way of positing the contrast between those those two narratives. Would you speak to what you mean by his Christ self? Yeah, so psychologically within us, there's Christ and Satan. The accuser, right? I mean, if I'm looking yeah. for an accuser, I know to look in the mirror. Right. I know to look inside me. Yeah. Right. The Christ is a little bit harder to see for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, is it Solzhenitsyn that says, you know, the the line between good and evil, as you say, the line between good and evil passes right through the heart of man, something like that. So we have, again, this idea of the, the mystery of conjunction of bringing those opposites together to be fully integrated human beings, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it occurs to me in the Jewish tradition, again, there's not this this good and evil thing going on in the garden. And Satan is never really seen as this enemy. I mean, the, Satan's not in the garden, right? You have a serpent. But even when it comes time for Satan and Job, he's he's there working with God. They're working together, God and Satan. We get that actually a little bit in the Moses account a little bit because what happens in the Moses account is the commentary is Satan knew not the mind of God because Satan seems to have his own agenda, not realizing that he's actually going along with God's plan all along. All these things will work together for your good. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. whatever it is that Satan ends up doing, God's plan isn't frustrated by it because his plan is at a much higher level and takes into account a lot more factors than Satan is considering. But when it comes to your your Christ self, you know, what I heard when you said that, you know, it occurred to me, Jesus is telling us, thinking of Jesus as the Christ, he's telling us he never did anything save he saw the Father do it, right? And then he's saying, come follow me. And, and we're told that we're all to be saviors on Mount Zion. And so it just seems to me like Jesus is inviting us to make Christ bigger than Jesus. Yeah. And part of that is, again, to recognize that the Christ in ourselves. And then there's a, a universal Christ that I think, that I, at least I thought you were pointing to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of returning to the idea that we have these these varying accounts, I, I like how we we have that progression sort of from the 
the Genesis account, which seems to be like what we might call in our context of everything, a more condensed account. Then we get to a little bit more expanded account of Moses. And then we have the temple account. And the temple account kind of mixes things up. But like we said, rather than really trying to reconcile these, I love how the variety of the different accounts just shows that there doesn't have to be one true account, right? The truth isn't manifest in the accuracy of some particular detail in an account, but it's in the symbolism and meaning of the narrative, the overall narrative. Even if there is very important and particular meaning manifest in a variety of different details from different particular accounts. Yeah, it's like I've taken to quoting Brian Zan, who says that the scriptures, all these accounts that we get, right, the scriptures are the penultimate word of God, right? The ultimate word of God is the word of God, right? Made flesh. Christ is the ultimate word of God. The scriptures are penultimate because the ultimate word of God is something ineffable. It cannot be put down in writing. Yeah. Yeah, there's... I think it's a Taoist proverb says something like, you know, never mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon. Oh, yeah. Right. That's a good one. So yeah. it's it's that the scriptures are all pointing to something. And if we if we're constantly looking at the scriptures themselves and we're not moving our gaze to look along the line of what they're pointing at then we'll never get the point, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ben, there's another comparison that we wanted to make, and that's between Cain and Satan. Yes. There is sort of this idea that can coalesce from some very different accounts and views that I've come across. And it's that we, we have accounts like, I'll, I'll start with Abraham. So the account we have in Abraham that we discussed probably two podcasts ago, we talked about the ambiguity at the end of chapter three about who it is that it's talking about. It says, one answered like unto the son of man, here am I, send me. And then a second answered, here am I, send me. And God says, I will send the first. And the second was angry. So we'll come back to that in just a second. We, we then have a, a Quranic account that talks about how God had made, at least from fire, I believe that is, right? Because he made all the jinn from fire. Iblis being uh, Lucifer. Yeah. Smokeless fire. Yeah. And so then Adam is made from the dust of the earth or clay. He's made from clay, which makes more sense, by the way, right? Yeah. The, the, it's in, now that you brought that up, just a quick note on that. When the Bible tells us we're made from dust, all that tells us is how we're related to the earth. Yeah. You can't form dust. The The idea of forming clay makes sense, right? Forming yeah. dust doesn't. Yeah, that's a little more Promethean too, right? So then God has made Adam and, and he's made Lucifer. And then he tells Lucifer, hey, I've made Adam and all creatures are to bow to him. And Lucifer is even to bow to him. And Lucifer responds to God and says, I'm made of something better. You know, I'm made before and I'm made from something finer Then I shouldn't have to bow to Adam. And so that's at the heart of the rebellion in this account of, of Lucifer is that he doesn't want to subject himself to Adam, right? Put, put himself under Adam. 
And so then he is, is cast down, right, in this narrative from the, the paradise of, of God or the presence of, of God. Then we go to our, our conventional pre-mortal existence narrative where we have God presenting a plan and saying, who am I going to send? And Christ says, he's going to fulfill the Father's plan. Satan says, I have a different plan. I'm surely going to save. So this comes up in Moses chapter 4. At the beginning of Moses chapter 4, there's a piece in here that informs our premortal existence narrative, talking about where Satan comes from and, and what happened in the premortal life with Satan, was that, you know, Satan had a particular way that he wanted things to go. God said, no, we're not going to do it that way. And so Satan rebelled against God. So these all sort of are similar in in the way that they they work the narrative. And one of the points that uh, was interesting to me when we return back to the Abraham chapter is that that part at the end where it says one responded like unto God and said, here am I, send me. So we have Adam in the Garden of Eden, but in, in our Latter-day Saint tradition, we actually have Adam as the pre-mortal Michael, right? Which the name Michael actually means like unto God. So it's not clear then uh, which is the one like unto God in Abraham. Yeah. Right. So it's possible that that Abraham account in this context could be referring to Adam instead of Jesus slash Jehovah, right? Which just a few verses earlier, it seems obvious that it is Jesus Jehovah. But then we go a few verses down. And it's like, is this talking about a different person? Because it refers to them differently. And so it is interesting to me that it's possible that those verses could be referring to Adam, in which case they actually line up really well with the Quranic account talking about how God had set Adam to be the first man, right, to go down and to do certain things. And and Lucifer was the one that he wanted to be the chosen one. He wanted to be the one that was sent. Which that part isn't in the Quran, right? But Yeah. But the idea that he didn't want to submit to Adam in any way. Correct. Didn't want to submit to Adam in any way. Now, what can bring those two together, though, is looking at him in a psychological sense. Because if God says, hey, I have this plan and you're, you know, you're going to uh, achieve joy and, and fulfillment and everything. And the way that it has to happen is you have to subject your, your Satan self to your Christ self, right? And the Christ self is the one who sacrifices for others, who, who does basically what Christ came and was the exemplar for, what Jesus came was the exemplar for. And the Satan self is the, the accuser, the selfish, the, you know, whatever we archetypically might associate with Satan. Well, that self doesn't want to subject itself to the Christ self, right? And so we have a rebellion here. And so psychologically, you could see how that actually maps out and, and ties both of those accounts together. I don't, I don't know about you, Ben, but I, I've never experienced any of this personally. What do you mean? <laughs> you I, never I'm, experienced I'm kidding, where ben. your, your better ben. half wants to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, very funny. No, but I've never experienced my, my, you know, my, my Satan self not wanting to submit to my Christ self, right? Right. No, it's, it's probably more likely the other way around, as, as you've uh, pointed out, Ben. So, I mean, when, when God says, I'm going to validate your true self instead of your, your false self, right? So again, you know, we, we have these accounts that, that we take literally, and there's no reason that they 
can't necessarily be literal, but because they are so true, they hold up at many different levels of analysis. And so one of the more interesting ways to, to look at them is, you know, in these metaphorical, even psychological sense. Right. And true doesn't have to be historical, right? Right. Right. Uh, true, true is above and beyond historical. It can include it. It can leave it out. It can be etiological. But I'm reminded of something that Covey wrote in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that is, I think that it speaks to the, the, the nature of archetypes. And that is, that which is most personal is most universal. And that which is most universal is most personal. Hmm. And it's like Terrence said, I am human. Nothing human is alien to me. These stories speak to human experiences. And that's why they're so relatable. They're, they're very personal because they're so universal. They survived as at least oral traditions for a very, very long time before they were, were even written down and, and compiled into what we have now as the book of Genesis. Yeah, and they're still with us. And, and some think that uh, we should get rid of them and that they're silly and that uh, they're, they're not historical. Well, they don't have to be historical to be true. Yeah. They have to be true to be true. I find truth in them, in my own experience, and in my experience of humanity. The fact that they survive so long as mythological tales that, that inform morality and, and social norms and society at large for thousands of years says there's, there's something more here going on with these than just some silly historical account that we can dismiss because of uh, a modern scientific understanding that we think conflicts, right? Silly ahistorical, that is, right? Yeah, ahistorical. Yeah, that, that pretends to be history when it, when it actually doesn't, I think is what's implied there, right? Uh, to, again, to read these texts literally is not what common sense tells us which is to take them at, the, at, at face value in our own terms, in our own context, in our own time and place, but rather to read them literally means to actually look at them in the context in which they are written and according to the worldview and culture and understanding of, of the authors who God inspired to write, but who ultimately wrote in their own human language according to their own human experience. These are real people living in real times, very different from our own. And yet human. And, and that's why they're still relatable. Well, um, Christopher, those were the main sort of themes and, and topics that I thought to, to bring out of this and, and discuss. As we sort of draw to, to a close on this podcast, what other things do you think might be important to, to bring up and discuss? Can you think of anything else you wanted to add? Not until after we hit stop on the recording. Right. Then it'll all come to me, Ben. Right. It's been a good conversation. And, and I'm sure that there are things that we could have said that we haven't said. At one point in our pre-show discussion, you pointed out that any one of the, the points that we, that we could bring out could be an hour-long conversation in and of itself. And I mean, not just that somebody could have that hour-long conversation. You and I could. Yeah. You know, we've, we've, we've put a lot of time into preparing for this. Hopefully, and people have for thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully what it means is that, that, that the time that we put into preparing means that we've been able to give a concise account of some of the ideas that we've synthesized from our own study yeah. and, from our own, and from our own imagination. I do think that we have to read these texts with imagination. 
they're not propositional. They're not logical arguments. It's funny because the 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 word uh, that we translate word as the as the word of God, as as John puts it, is logos, which is rational principle, um, rational argument, or sentence, or paragraph. All these are valid translations of the Greek logos, and yet, what kind of quote unquote argument does God make? He says, "Eke omo," right? Behold the man. And he gives us a model of a perfect human being. So his argument is aesthetic. It's not logical. It's aesthetic. And and there it is, right? There's there's the model. And and we're to follow the model. There's no argument, right? There's just a the Christ. Example. The the, the an example of the Christ self in us walking around incarnate, right? In a, in a fellow man. You know, I did think of of two other little points I I wanted to bring up. Okay. One was going back to our discussion about the the difference between the response of Adam and Eve to God, God's interrogation and and Cain's. And and it was to bring in the beatitudinal hermeneutic because on a podcast that Shadow and I did back when we talked about the book of Ether, we talked about when the brother of Jared goes up into the mountain and the experience he has is sort of like an, an anti-Cain narrative. And when we, when we get to Adam and Eve, we see here that their acceptance of God's judgment and, and the way that things are going to be and how he's going to, to redeem them, they don't argue. They're, they're simply praising God and, and grateful to him. So this is an example of, of meekness, what we might call forgiving reality. And that reminds me, and I remembered this before we hit stop, we didn't really finish making the comparison between Cain and Satan, right? Because we talked about Satan, right? But we didn't talk about how Cain faces the same dilemma, right? When, when it comes to his brother. So I, we didn't really close that out because, right, Ben, ben because... Um, you're saying Satan didn't want to submit to Adam. Well, uh, we said we were going to compare him to Cain, and we never made the comparison. And I th- I thought the comparison was something like Cain didn't want to submit to his brother. Well, so there there is the archetypal brothers in conflict there, right? Cain and Abel. We have Jesus and, and Lucifer, you know, one seeking the blood of the other, right, to kill them for, for gain. And in the story of Cain, you know, one of the things, one of the other things that this stands out to me about this is that we have them both bringing offerings to God. And it says that God had respect to Abel's, but not unto Cain's and Cain's countenance fell. What's interesting to me about this is this is a, this is a perception that Cain has about his offering. He's looking at Abel and thinking that Abel's offering is better than his and so it's a type of pride right to to look at at yourself and say you're not as good as this other one and then become resentful because of it right we're back to iblis uh why should i bow down to him he's made out of clay i'm made out of smokeless fire and so in the account we we have this statement that like god doesn't have respect to it I don't take that as an objective statement that God himself thought that Abel's offering was better than Cain's because, you know, God doesn't need the flocks. He doesn't need the fruit. He has everything he needs, right? God has no respect to persons. Yeah. This is simply Cain's perception. And his perception was that 
he, what he was offering was not good enough. And so as soon as that idea took hold, which is this temptation from Satan to view ourselves as not good enough, you know, it's that accusatory thing. You're, you didn't give as much as Abel. You're not as good, you know, so forth. As soon as that takes hold, he feeds it, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't reject that. He feeds it and continues to seethe over that narrative. And it turns into that that resentment of Abel. And again, this this can be seen as this recurring theme of this rivalry of, of the brothers, right? And this happens in, in scriptures over and over of brothers that are that are in conflict. We get in the Book of Mormon, we get Nephi and, and Laman, right? Stuff like that. So whereas here at the Hurtado house, that never happens. <laughs> you never have sibling. Again, rivalry. these are these are universal and particular, right? Yeah, they, they really are. This is really personal stuff. And so with that, too, you know, to bring this back to the actionable, as you said, I wanted to do right. I wanted to make sure that 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 these texts, that we make them relevant, that we make them actionable. Even these are these are temple texts. These are etiological accounts of not only how how things are, but of how we are. And so I think they can do a lot to explain our own inner states our own inner conflicts, our own interpersonal conflicts. And so if we look at them in that way, we can really gain a lot of psychological insight, insight into ourselves, insight into our relationships, insight into our children. And so I think they're very, very valuable in that, in that way. You know, totally out of place like we've been doing um, with these. Christopher, I know there was one more point that you wanted to bring up about Eve and the commandment to not eat the fruit. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Eve is the first rabbi. Now, before I go into Eve as the first rabbi, Ben, I just want to go back and recap a little bit. I want to put a finer point on a couple of things that have been said, because we've actually, in this episode, we've actually talked about women in the priesthood. We have Eve as a priestess working side by side with Adam in the temple, right? From the beginning. From the beginning, yeah. in the garden, in the temple. And we also have uh, Eve as ontologically equal to Adam, half of him, right? They're, they're, they're two ontologically equal halves. So we have equality, we have women with, with priesthood, and now we have Eve as the first rabbi. I was sitting in the temple waiting for my session to begin in the chapel and reading closely between, uh, the, if you open your scriptures to Moses 4 and 5, they're on facing pages. And over on the left-hand side, I read that Adam was told not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm paraphrasing here. And over on the on the next page, on the right-hand side, Eve tells Satan, she reports to Satan that, I, I don't know if I should say she or they, but the point is she says that, that they're not even to touch the tree. We're not to eat it, neither to touch it. Yeah, that's right. Don't even come anywhere near it, right? Is the and so yeah. here you have you have Eve as the first rabbi commenting on on the text, and this is something you did say at the beginning that or I said that we would bring out, right? Yeah, that that this text these texts have been commented on since the beginning, starting with <laughs> Eve. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. You know, not not don't just not do the thing God told you not to do. Don't even get close to doing it. Don't even think about it. <laughs> Don't even think about it. Yeah. It reminds me of that that um, talk in priesthood session years ago. There's a waterfall in Brazil called the Devil's Throat in English. And it's one of those 
where you have this rock that you can actually like in the cartoon, you know, if you think about uh, what's it, uh, the Emperor's New Groove, for example. Oh, I yeah. Think there's yeah. something like this, right? You can people actually row boats out to this rock that's right at the edge of you're going to go over the waterfall so that they can stand on it and be as close as possible to it without going over and actually look into the devil's throat, as it were. And I, can, I don't remember who the speaker was. One of the general authorities in priesthood session uh, back then said, don't even go anywhere near the devil's throat. It's the same comment, comment, right? <laughs> same comment. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for that, Christopher. It was a great little thing to, to <laughs> add at the end. I think it's a interesting point to make. And there's all kinds of little tidbits around there. I, I hadn't even noticed that before that, that Eve adds to God's commandment just right out of the gate there. We appreciate everyone listening and and commenting and giving your input on these. And, you know, Shiloh did this a lot more often than than I have, and, and I've neglected to do this. But man, we sure appreciate all of the efforts that go into this from the people that edit and publish this. This includes Kyle, and this includes Tom, and Shiloh's doing stuff, you know, on the back end for, for this podcast still as well. So we, uh, we sure appreciate all you guys do to make this possible. Christopher and I have, have gained a lot out of our, our discussions over this, both previous two recordings, during recordings and after, <laughs> right? Anyway, we just, we appreciate all that you guys have done. Yeah. After we hit stop, Ben, we'll have to talk about the, the thing that's taught in the Quran, that's taught in the temple that doesn't mm-hmm. show up anywhere in the standard works. I never yeah. like to tell people where that is because I want them to have to read to find it you for themselves. You want them to pull it up and find it. Yeah. Yeah. Go search for it. Yeah. Yeah. That is fascinating that there's, there's that part there um, that seems to be nowhere else, but in those two places. So, all right. Well, again, thanks for listening, everybody. And until next time, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks.